Well, hello again, everybody. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open. In fact, turn them back to page 2, to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we'll uh, spend some time together this morning. And inside the service sheet that you were handed as you came in, uh, you would have received, you should have seen, there's plenty of space there if you'd like to take down notes or ask questions. The series that we're going to be doing is going to evoke plenty of questions, I would imagine. So feel free uh, to write them down and come and chat to me uh, afterwards as well. Let me pray again as we spend this time uh, understanding God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you teach us now, that you open our minds to understand your Word, that you open our hearts that we might receive it, and that you might move in our wills so that we live it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, a few years ago, I received a wonderful gift from my family. It was the Sunbeam Twin Thermo Block Espresso Machine. And I know you're excited, because I'm excited about that as well. I love good coffee, and this machine has made many a good coffee in our house. Except for the first time that I tried to use this machine. I've been to Gloria Jeans many times. I kind of know what coffee looks like and, and how they make coffee. You just put the coffee grounds in that basket thing and you shove it on the machine and you press the button and, hey, presto, you've got a wonderful coffee. Except it didn't work out that way. I didn't program the machine. I didn't take any care in making sure that the coffee was tamped properly. Uh, I didn't make sure that it was on the machine properly and there was water spraying everywhere. There's coffee grounds going everywhere. I made an absolute mess of it. Because I assumed I knew what I was doing, but I didn't. And then I pulled out the actual instruction manual and discovered how to program the machine, how much coffee you're meant to put into the basket, and then which button you're meant to press. And then, oh, when you see that creamy coffee pouring out, filling the cup, and then, the, oh, you can taste it and you can smell it now, can't you? Wonderful experience. Great coffee. But in all of life, it can be tempting, can't it, to take the quick and the easy route. Whether it's instant coffee, <clears throat> takeaway Maccas after church. Uh, you want to go home, you want to cook a decent meal, but how many of you are going to go to Maccas after church? Yeah, well. There's one honest person and the rest of you are all liars. Because we know how easy it is to take the quick and the easy route. But quick and easy doesn't always work, does it? Particularly for complex areas of life. And in particular, human relationships. Having 500 friends on Facebook may look good to you, but just having one friend who will stand by your side in the good times, the bad times and the sad times is often all that you need. When you're feeling particularly lonely at home, you might take out your phone and you say, Hey Siri, do you love me? <laughs> Siri doesn't love me. And that might make you feel good for a couple of moments, but how much better is it is to have a real person in the flesh standing beside you saying, I know everything about you, and I still love you to bits. It's no accident that we feel that way, because God has designed us that way. He has designed us, I want to suggest, not to live an instant coffee life but an espresso life. Today we begin this series looking at the Song of Songs. Uh, we're calling it the Love Song, because the very title of the book itself suggests that this is the song of all love 
songs. And uh, you may have read snippets of it in the past. Its explicit language has often caused many people to giggle, and there's going to be a few giggles over the next few weeks. Maybe it's caused you to blush as well. But it's not R-rated. It's a beautiful love song about God's espresso design for human relationships and particularly intimate relationships at that. Now, when it comes to thinking about God and intimate relationships, love, sex, marriage, there have generally been two dominant views throughout church history on how you think about God and these particular areas uh, of relationships. One common view throughout history has been that sex is God. In the ancient world, sexual activity was often associated with religious worship. So if you went to a pagan temple in the ancient world, often you would find temple prostitutes there. And sexual activity would be associated with religious worship. And in the modern world, I want to suggest that it's not too dissimilar. If you think about what it means to be a worshipper, it's something that gives you a sense of identity, something that you expend time and money on. And in many people's lives in our world today, sex is just as much a God as it was for many in the ancient world. We define our identity by our sexuality. Sex is often the basis of any good TV or movie show that we want to give time to. And according to recent stats in Australia, we spend $2 billion a year on pornography. Many people might say that at this time of year, Australia's favourite pastime is watching the football. Statistically, it's not. Something else is Australia's favourite pastime. The alternative view that's been throughout history is that sex is not God. In fact, it's the opposite. Sex is godless. It's something that's unholy. It's something that's naughty. Something that you are meant to avoid if you want to be holy. And at times when I was a teenager in youth group at church, uh, I felt at times that the most common teaching that I heard from my youth group leaders was, in particular, this area of sexuality was, no, none of that. Don't look. Don't touch. (laughs) And so you can grow up, if you're a Christian, thinking that sex is something naughty, that it's something unholy that you ought not to be engaged in. And in some Christian traditions, it's taught that ministers should not engage in this particular activity, that they shouldn't be married because they ought to be completely distraction-free and give themselves wholly and fully to God. But I want to suggest that the Bible presents a third way. Sex is not God, nor is it godless. I think the Bible says quite clearly that sex is a gift from God. And in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation of the gift. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, we see the first human romance. We see the first love song. Uh, We see the first marriage. Uh, You may recall the happy couple. They're pretty famous now. There's Adam and there's Eve. Adam lives in a nice garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And everything is beautiful and good in this garden. In fact, God says, it is good. But then in chapter 2, verse 18, we're told that there is something that's not good in this good garden. And that is that it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God makes the wonderful and beautiful Eve. 
And then in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 2, we see the first wedding. And it's a great wedding. God is like the father of the bride and he brings Eve to Adam. You can probably picture Adam maybe at the top of a garden aisle, waiting there with a goofy little smile on his face that you often see the groom having at the front of the church. And then the God of all things walks Eve down to Adam. And then Adam's response, we're told in Genesis 2, is, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman. For she was taken from man. And most Bible experts believe this is Adam singing. And you might translate it today like, oh yeah, (laughs) this is the one. The tigers and the giraffe, they were great, but this is the one that I meant to be with. He's singing. And what follows is a picture of deep intimacy. They are like two pieces of paper glued together, spiritually emotionally and physically. And there is a complete openness and trust and vulnerability in their relationship. Do you notice how the chapter ends where we're told that they are both naked and felt no shame because there is complete trust and openness and a vulnerability in their relationship. And we don't see God being ashamed either. This is God's gift to them. It's not like on Adam and Eve's wedding night, God was looking down from heaven going, Hey! That's not what I meant! Stop that! He doesn't. Because this is God's gift to humanity. And if Genesis 2 is the creation of the gift, I want to suggest that Song of Songs is the illustration of the gift. A song expanding on Adam's song in Genesis chapter 2. And as I said, it gets quite explicit at times. For example, we'll try and hold the giggles. But if you can't help it, that's okay. How beautiful you are and how pleasant, my love, with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit, I said. I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. I know if you were coming to church this morning expecting to hear that from the minister. Welcome to our church. And that's just the start. There are many more explicit things that you'll read in Song of Songs. Now, not everyone is happy or comfortable. How can such intimate details of marriage relate, be in the Bible. And many have had a problem with the book of Song of Songs. I mean, how many sermon series in church have you heard on this book? You may get a couple of verses at someone's wedding, but to hear it taught in church, that's another story, because it's a little uncomfortable. Uh, There was a Christian man who lived many years ago, famous Christian theologians, Origen, lived at the beginning of the early church. He was an expert in the Bible, and he wrote a 10-volume ten volume commentary on Song of Songs. And he didn't mention the word sex once. I don't know about you, but as you read through the book of Song of Songs, it's hard to not see that word appearing in different forms, whether it's poetry or not. Now, Origen had a distorted view of 
sexuality. Uh, like most men, he struggled with lust in his early years. And his solution was to take Jesus literally when they said that it was a part of your body that causes you to sin, cut it off. So he did. Um, except I don't think it, it may have taken his mind off things for a little bit. I'm not sure it was a long-term solution uh, to his problem. But many throughout church history have followed Origen's desires. And song of songs can't be about what it appears to be about. It must be about something else. Something much more holy than just human relationships and intimacy. For example, one Bible commentator quotes this verse, Song of Songs 113, that says, My love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. And they can't be talking about what you think it's talking about. Uh, Jesus must be the myrrh, and the two breasts must be the Old and the New Testament. That's what it must be about. Now, to me that seems a little more than forced in its interpretation. It's my view that the Song of Songs is what it appears to be. It's a song about the intimate love between a husband and his wife, a lover and a beloved. And it's presenting to us a vision of what genuine love and intimacy can look like if you follow the Creator's pattern in the Garden of Eden. It's a song about Garden of Eden intimacy. That's what it's about. And as you read through the Song of Songs, you can't help but notice these echoes and allusions to the Garden of Eden. For example, we read this in Song of Songs chapter 4. My sister, my bride, you are a locked garden, a locked garden and a sealed spring. Your branches are a paradise of pomegranates with choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the best spices. You are a garden spring, a well of flowing water streaming from Lebanon. Awaken, north wind, come, south wind, blow in my garden and spread the fragrance of its spices. Let my love come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. You can't help but notice that the song is dripping with images from the Garden of Eden. Garden, paradise, fruit, springs of living water. Because it is a living illustration of what true human intimacy, the way that God designed it to be, ought to look like. But at this, at this point, some people still have another problem with the book. Who do you think wrote the book? <clears throat> We're told in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening line. Who wrote it? Solomon's finest song. Of all the songs that Solomon wrote, this is the song of songs. Now, I don't know if you know too much about Solomon, which is why we had 1 Kings 11 read a little bit this morning. Solomon's famous for two things, really. He's famous for being the most wisest man on earth at the time. But he's also famous for his, let's say, extensive his extensive human relationships. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives. <laughs> I now pronounce you man and 700 wives. <laughs> and he had a long service, that's right. And he had 300 concubines, 300 other women that he hadn't got round to marrying. 
He had 1,000 sexual partners. Three a day for an entire year. 700 mother-in-laws. <laughs> How can you be the smartest person in the world and get married 700 times? How could a sexual addict like Solomon write such a beautiful poem, song, about genuine human intimacy? It just does not make sense. Well, I am convinced that Solomon wrote this song. Least of all, because the Bible says that he did. And I'm a bit of a romantic. I cried at the end of Titanic. <laughs> I cried at the end of The Notebook. You did too, Anthony Longley, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to imagine Solomon at the end of his life, looking back over his many failed relationships, looking back over his pursuit of sexual pleasure, and realising, I messed up. I got it wrong all this time. I thought relationships and pleasure was just all about me. And I got it wrong. And so inspired by God, Solomon sat down and wrote this song. A song about two lovers. A lover and a beloved, a husband and wife who get it right and to experience the joy of what he never did. Espresso love. And the reason I think that that's Solomon's message to us is I got it wrong, I want to tell you a better way. It's because there's a couple of refrains that appear throughout Song of Songs, uh, two in particular. One refrain is this, where in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, and 8, verse 4, we read, do not awaken love until it so desires. And another refrain in 2.16, 6 verse 3 and 7 verse 10 is, my beloved is mine and I am his. And those two refrains, I think, are Solomon preaching to you and to me about what genuine love and intimacy is like. He's saying to us, don't be like me. Don't settle for instant coffee intimacy. Don't do it my way. I've been there and it doesn't end well. Wait until the right time. And that right time, according to Genesis chapter 2, is your wedding night when you can comfortably and in all safety declare, my beloved is mine. And I am his. True love is simple, monogamous, faithful, passionate, garden of Eden love. That's the message of songs. Now there are so many other songs giving us advice in this area of intimate human relationships, aren't there? I don't know if you listen to the radio. Uh, what's on your Spotify playlist? Endless love. <laughs> Taylor Swift's love story. There are so many other songs telling us what we should do in this area. And I want to suggest that many of them are telling us, do what Solomon did. Do what Solomon did. Uh, Katy Perry is a famous pop artist. Let me read you a lyric from one of her love songs. 
And you tell me whether this is instant coffee sex or if this is espresso sex. Damn! <laughs> Great way to start, isn't it? Last Friday night, yeah. We danced on tabletops and we took too many shots. Think we kissed, but I forgot. Last Friday night. We went streaking in the park, skinny dipping in the dark. Last Friday night. That's what people are listening to. Instant coffee sex or espresso. I think you can conclude. Solomon knew all about this 3,000 years ago. And he said it's not worth it. It's not worth it. There's something better. Listen to my song, he now says. The song of songs. Now I'm aware that as we step into this series over the next six or seven weeks, that it might be raw for many of you and it might open up past wounds for some of you as well. Some of you are single and you long to be married. You long to experience the reality that Song of Songs portrays, and that's hard. Some of you are divorced. Some of you have lost a spouse to death. And you still feel the pain of an intimate relationship that you once experienced but no longer have. And that's hard. And talking about love and sex and marriage over the next seven weeks may feel like a dagger of disappointment constantly stabbing you in the heart. And maybe even now you're wondering, should I put myself through that? Should I come to church at all for the next seven weeks? Some of you are married, but are unhappily married. You seem to be fighting more and more. The fun and the romance in your relationship is on holidays without you. And your sex life, well, what's it like? And again, you may fear that hearing about the passionate love of this husband and wife in the Song of Songs is going to be just as painful for you. But let me encourage you to stick with us. Keep coming to church over the next few weeks. I'm happy to chat through your fears and your concerns. I'm your pastor. I love you. And I want to cry with you, pray with you, encourage you in any way that I can. And I hope that you can stick with us because as we're going to see, this idyllic, passionate love between the lover and the beloved of the Song of Songs is not without its frustrations. (coughs) It's not as perfect as you might think. And I believe that's deliberate. Because it's a reminder from God himself that love, sex and marriage is not ultimate in God's plan for humanity. They are good, but they point beyond themselves to a deeper love that we can only experience in union with Christ (coughs) and trusting in him. You see, there's a reason Song of Songs is in the Bible. And it's not just to be God's manual for the bedroom. It's God's word to us. It's not an allegory, but it is God's word. And so it will teach us something about God and his love for us. And I hope that as you stick with us over this series, you'll discover how good that love is. Let's pray. 
Father, we know that we live in a world that often has competing ideas about love and sex and marriage. Some of us, and some of us are told that sex is God, it's the chief end of all humanity, that unless we're married, we're not really human, unless we're sleeping with someone, we're not experiencing the highs of, of life. But some of us have been told that it's wrong, that it's ungodly and unholy, and we ought to avoid it at all costs, but we know that that's incomplete as well. Father, thank you for reminding us today that it's your great gift to humanity. And even though Solomon got it so wrong that he wrote this song to remind us of true Garden of Eden type love. Simple, monogamous, faithful, passionate love. And Father, as we reflect on your great love for us, may that enhance all our relationships. Jesus' name.